0: Welcome to the Battleground, Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, which means Rebecca Lynch is with us from the Wisconsin Working Families. Rebecca, good to see you. Good to be here, Matt. And from the car, on the phone, Robert Craig, Executive Director, as he is headed out to Joint Finance Committee today. Robert
1: Craig. I am. I, uh, the listeners know what's going to happen today. I do not, though. I think I bet my uh, my domicile that I know what the result is going to be because this is a fixed vote. But uh, I'm on my way to bear witness.
0: Yes. Yeah, so for our listeners, right? Obviously, uh, most of you will will be hearing this after the Joint Finance Committee vote, and we're going to talk more about it. Um, big vote today, uh, and then we're going to talk some more about a report re released on uh, opiates and the impact of not accepting the Medicaid money. Some new numbers on. Uh, the uninsured and how they're increasing here in America. We're also going to be joined by Sarah. What the Godlukski does the state treasurer do uh, for our monthly installment? And then we're going to talk a little presidential uh, primary, Democratic primary. It's getting very interesting. So, Robert, we're going to kick it over back to you. This is a big deal. Um, joint Finance Today is holding a vote, and we want our listeners to know Joint Finance Committee is basically the leadership of the parties. So, essentially, the Republican and Democratic leadership generally will appoint people to Joint Finance who will be on board with what the leadership is up to. And so, we don't expect any kind of uh, folks uh, pulling out or changing uh, their votes today. Uh, but we also don't believe that this is by any means the end of uh, end of end of the fight because uh, this, this budget's going to have to go to the Senate and the Assembly. But, Robert, this is a huge critical point, opportunity for us to continue to organize and demonstrate the weakness of the Republicans on a number of issues, including expanding Medicaid.
1: Yeah, this is a big deal, but not for the reason some people think. I think a lot of folks on our side are used to losing because of the, what the full Walker and right-wing conservative control of the legislature for eight years. This is not that situation. So this all stemmed, this coming out of order and having the controversial votes come early in the process rather than later, I mean, right away, because there were press reports, especially a big associated press story, about Republicans being to defect and looking for compromise on badger care expansion. And so then Voss tweeted back at the story, hashtag never, and then all of a sudden they caused this emergency panic vote which we think they can win because their loyalists are on this committee. They packed it with their loyalists. But it's not over at all. The public is with us. Uh, Tony Evers is standing strong. They can't have a budget without Governor Evers. And we are winning on the ground. We are winning with public opinion. So this is more of an act of desperation in hopes that we will fold. And we shouldn't overreact to it. We should be be animated by it, but we should not overreact to it. And We need to keep going.
2: So, Robert, uh, that that is really helpful, and I think uh, one of the things I'd love to ask you and Matt about is what things look like after this joint finance committee vote. I mean, it seems like really interesting strategy to me from the top. If their members are being squeezed and they're reporting to leadership, hey, we're feeling a lot of pressure, we think we need to compromise a bit here, that they're forcing them into this box with this vote, that's going to make things, I think, even more tough. Um, but I wonder like, if you could just like, explain a little bit to listeners, you know, what do we do now? What's the game plan? What's the likelihood that we can you know, influence the vote of some of these individual legislators? Um, and how, how does this look over the next few weeks?
1: So this is both a hope that will fold and a hope that blowing the partisan dog whistle will, uh, r- will basically reinforce their ranks. And so L- Luther Olson on um, Joint Finance Committee was one of the people who's, uh, who was outspoken about needing to take the money. They think, of course, that he'll vote with once commanded on a partisan vote that he won't vote against his own party. And so this is a way of trying to strengthen them. But they really are under tremendous public pressure. Um, specifically, uh, they, you know, not only the opinion polling with 70% support for Medicaid uh, expansion to expand BadgerCare, uh, but just the number of calls, the amount know, of testimony and joint finance. It was over 100 witnesses for and zero against in the four big public hearings. And a lot of Republicans are being coy. They're not really staying their position. So they're letting Fitzgerald and Voss and the leaders of the Joint Finance Committee, like Nigrin and Darling, take the heat. Darling was one of the people suing for compromise. So that, that probably really was a warning shot for them. And she obviously is probably feeling a lot of pressure as well. I'll give you one quick example uh, A lot of calls were made to Dale Coinga, the uh, freshman uh, state senator from the western suburbs of Milwaukee, who is considered a rising star, like a future Paul Ryan in the Republican Party. Not only, even though he's made, sent emails to constituents full of the various fake logic and fake research from the right saying this is a bad idea, um, his staff started saying that he was very open to compromise and wanted to find a way to take the money yesterday. And then when the calls kept coming, the staff started trying to refer their own constituents to the Joint Finance Committee members, saying they're doing this, not Dale Coinga. So that shows you the pressure is working, and that is why Voss and Fitzgerald are fo- trying to force this vote, because they were afraid their caucuses, especially the Senate caucus, where the majority is much thinner, was about to cave. And so this really is a sign of weakness, and the thing we need to do is to keep the pressure on, and the Governor Evers is clearly going to keep the pressure on in his end, and and not accept any budget it doesn't include Patrick uh, care expansion.
2: Yeah, I think that is such an extraordinary story that gives me a lot of hope in terms of you know the the power that we the people and constituents have in spite of the illegitimate legislator legislature created by gerrymandering in spite of all the money in politics that we can you know try our best to influence the outcome here and something that you know because i always look at things from an electoral perspective that this is a two-step process that you know after today's vote at the joint finance committee we are gonna you know as constituents reach out to our legislators and demand they represent us and we should do that i think whether they're republicans or democrats but make Sure, that everyone knows where we are and that they have clarity in terms of what the fight is about. Um, But also, the importance is not just trying to get votes for the people's budget, the budget that we all voted for in November, but it's to make sure that our friends and neighbors are aware of who our legislators are and just how they're selling us out, if they are, um, so that this time next year we're able to have that conversation again, remind people that they know that um, when it comes time to go to the ballot box. And, you know, to to Robert's point, you know, the state Senate, there is a thinner majority for the Republicans there. I I also think that there is a lot of ground that we're going to make up in 2020 in the Assembly. And so every single call and every single Facebook post and everything you do around this budget right now, when it comes to Republican legislators, it's going to have a huge impact, not just on this budget, but on next year's elections. To, uh, I'll
1: just add quickly that there's there's a recent experience that shows what Rebecca is saying is true. It was Trump Care, the attempt to repeal the Affordable Care Act, and we had no power in that process. And public opinion triumphed, and they tried anyway, and then health care was the top issue in the next election with a lot of work. But that's the setup. There's a setup between this and the election. And uh, you go ahead, Matt, but I have have a scoop about the process to give our listeners that hasn't been in the mainstream media yet.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, I think the pressure matters, and I want to thank all the the listeners and our members who have been uh, doing a ton, uh, not only before this past week when this was announced, but just in the past week alone We've had over 100 members that we've been able to document that have called targeted state senators. We've done over 2,000, members have done over 2,000 texts to other members to encourage them to contact. We've been in a partnership with moveon.org where there have been over 100,000 texts in targeted districts that are encouraging people to contact their legislators. Um, Huge efforts going on, and uh, also shout-out to Greta newbauer and other uh, legislative Ooh, yeah. democrats who are really jumping in and organizing and trying to really get the ground uh, out and get people to feel pressure on their state legislators and not and, and not let this thing be any kind of just insider thing so uh, we need to keep up the pressure uh, cuz it matters so robert i know you have some information um, we've got about li- little under 2 minutes just uh, tease our listeners as to what what we've heard that we believe uh, the Republicans are going to do to try to get this budget through um, in pieces.
1: Well, as you know, conservatives believe in accountability for other people, especially less powerful people, not themselves. We're seeing that with Trump right now. So we got information from legislators, including joint Finance Committee members, that they apparently never planned to deliver a budget because by cutting out the Medicaid expansion money and getting rid of the Uh, the cap on the Manufacturer Agricultural Tax Credit, the biggest corporate tax giveaway in Wisconsin history, Uh, they can't fund a real budget, so they plan to piecemeal little parts of it and never deliver a budget to Evers because they can't do a credible one that won't be highly unpopular. And so if they get away with that, that's just another step away from any accountability. They can't deliver a budget anyone could accept that uh, actually balances out and actually doesn't contain massive cuts to popular programs. And so, I mean, even in healthcare, we're generating 800 million, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, of additional federal money from the other Medicaid spending that is funded by the expansion. And so, in other words, it's like it's a multiplier effect, and they can't—they so they got to cut all of that out of the budget. And that's like lead pipes, it's stuff for mental health and substance use disorders, or for, for women's health, a whole lot of uh, increases the in rates for uh, for doctors, a whole lot of things.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and, and you mentioned Man Ag getting pulled, so they, they're just not going to have the revenue to produce a budget that would be at all palatable to, to the public, broadly speaking. It might be good for their base, but that's about it. With that, we got to take a break here at the Battleground Wisconsin. We'll be right back. We are Citizen Action. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Before we left, we were talking about the joint finance hearings. Robert laid out not only the pressure that is being applied on these Republicans and how this is really just the first opportunity uh, to take a swing at them, quite frankly. So one of the things that we want to talk about related to this lead-up in joint finance was yesterday, Citizen Action released a report that yet again further demonstrates why expanding access and taking the Medicaid money is so important, and that is around opioids and opioid abuse, which is a huge issue, right? And we have a whole campaign here around trying to get this and other uh, addiction issues out of the criminal justice and into a medical approach. And obviously, getting folks treatment is critical. And, And Robert, study released report we released yesterday showed that folks that are actually on Badger care and have Medicaid way 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 more 72 times more uh, access to the resources needed to actually get opioid treatments. Tell us more
1: So this is a big deal and uh, the report was done by our senior organizer, known the to listeners, Kevin Kane. Um, there's a great research design some real strong experts have told us that. don't know if no, they so, will be I mean public so I'll just refer to them. Uh, not by name, uh, but the Republicans, in some strange sort of way, and by the way, the fact that they're running around in circles and changing positions is good. That's what happened under Trump Care. So that's okay. But suddenly they're defending the Affordable Care Act marketplace, the private insurance that people they denied Badger Care have access to with not enough subsidies for them to afford, but have access to when they've been trying to destroy that marketplace for eight years. And so they're being to say, oh, is welfare, BadgerCare is, you should have private insurance. And so it occurred to Kevin, and I certainly agreed, that we should start talking about what's the difference between private insurance, dealing with an insurance company, and an actual public program like BadgerCare, which in many ways is the state's Medicare program, as in Medicare for All. And so we looked at something that was, Kevin did. That was a big, that's a big crisis, the opiate crisis. Politicians on both sides, Scott Walker, John Nygren, all of them say it's a crisis. We have to deal with it. Well, the best treatment right now for opiate addiction is what's called medication-assisted treatment. That is getting people on a regimen of anti-opiate drugs. And for a lot of people, it's like being a diabetic. They literally have to be on it the whole lives. And if you look at the cost for a low income person just above the poverty line who they're currently denying Badger care by not taking the Medicaid expansion money, literally the copay every two weeks is a dollar on Badger care. And for private insurance, it's all over the map, but it's generally 77 times more. For a lot of people, it's $3,000 a year. This is people just making, you know, if you're a single person, eight fifty an hour in a job that doesn't provide any health insurance, right? And and more than that, if they're a family, up into twenty, thirty thousand. But that's a barrier to treatment. And we had a doctor testify who who, work, who works in this area saying that insurance companies profit by getting people not to utilize care. When you do that for people addicted to opiates, you are killing people. He said that. That specifically at our press conference on Wednesday. And so this has, again, opened up another—we can give other examples, which I think we will, because this will be a long debate about uh, public insurance versus private insurance. And this not only keeps the pressure on for badger care, because people of all parties care about the opiate crisis, it also makes the case for making it a more and more public system, which I think our listeners— unless they're, uh, they're trolling us from the right wing, agree that we need to get to Medicare for all in this country. And that's why you don't need private health insurance in the middle, because they're about profit, not people's lives or people's health.
0: Yeah, I, Robert, that's what I like the best about the study. I mean, obviously, opiate's a huge issue, um, but the, the notion that it draws a real distinction between what the public system and what the best or the average of the current private system that would be available... Uh, provides. And I think it would be very useful to do this, not only throughout this budget fight here in the state, but as we transition um, also federally, we have the Medicare for All, and there's a whole bunch of other plans that are going to improve people's access into an increasingly public system, what that difference is. Because we need to drive that home. It helps continue to build support for this increasingly public system. Um, And by the way, it is really important to point out again, going back to joint, uh, going back to you brought up Coyenga, right? Coyenga was challenged last cycle by Julie Henzi. He narrowly won, and she ran, was running on Medicare for all. She was running on single payer. She was running on health care uh, as an issue. So it does matter what we talk about, what we run on, the vision we lay out, and how politicians maybe feel the pressure. There's a reason, in addition to the calls going in, Koyunga is extraordinarily worried about this issue, and he should be. I know he's not up for another three years, but nonetheless, he will be up in three years. We need to talk about a couple other things that are being pulled out of joint finance and just related to this budget, right? Uh, Medical marijuana. This is, again— Um, Huge issue. Very, very popular. And by the way, probably getting popular as we speak, right? This is an issue that is trending really bad for Republicans who, for some reason, have decided that they want to pull even medical marijuana, which was over 80% in the latest Marquette poll. This is insane, Rebecca. What? (laughs) It's more like, clearly, clearly these are things that they're, that they're doing in joint finance because they're popular and they want to get out front on them. This is crazy.
2: Yeah, I I don't understand it except to say that, you know, it's the Republican strategy, whether it's national or local, to not give any kind of perceived win to a Democratic executive or, or legislature. And so I think that that must be the only reason, because at the end of the day, like, you know, whether someone is a social conservative or a fiscal conservative there is no real reason to be be against medical marijuana um i mean it ties in nicely with what we we're just talking about with the opioid crisis because again they're playing politics with people's health um but yeah it's, it, it seems really strange and i think you know, for us, it's it's a bit of a—I mean, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who really need this now who are mm-hmm. going to suffer. Um, but in terms of the politics, it's a bit of a gift because it's just, like, so freaking popular.
0: I, I just—this one dumbfounds me, especially given this one eats into their base really bad, uh, particularly their libertarian base, which for voters—our listeners may not know, Wisconsin is a huge libertarian base compared to a number of other states. Um, some, some say it's as large as 8% uh that uh, of the republican party and some of them like self-identify as libertarians we even probably have a two or three percent um so and this is a huge issue like this is one of their top issues right because it gets into the role of government for them and so yeah just it seems odd especially the medical part why that's 80 percent. they don't want
2: to give governor evers a win that's That's the
0: only explanation right that this is just straight trench warfare um and again the fact that this is part of the, the joint finance stuff that's moving shows that it's unpopular and that's why they're trying to whip uh, their folks in line down down down, down in the legislature. Robert.
1: I don't I don't know how much time we have, but I can give you a more deep framing explanation. Go. We have two and a half I mean, minutes. Literally Yeah. Literally uh, they believe in this kind of as George Lakoff has put it, strict father model. So they just decide uh, Robin Voss is the leader. Scott Walker was the leader. And so remember, uh, Voss, pretty famously to me, not to the public yet, said in response to the Marquette polling on Badger Care expansion mansion that he doesn't listen to polls. He's a leader. So he's the decider. That's why he's in charge, regardless of whether most of the public voted for Democrat in the Assembly in his gerrymandered districts gave him this speakership. And then they're, they're still in this older model on health care. They're still in the Obama-era model where being opposed to health care is somehow good for them and if not adapted. These are not the leaders nationally of Republican strategy, so they're operating in the old paradigm. And it seems like they're operating in the old paradigm uh, that literally we need to outlaw drugs and have a war on drugs. And they just know and giving them a different paradigm. So that's where Robin Voss is because he thinks he's a great thinker, but he's quite the opposite and so they it's just like on trump care and repeal the affordable care act they're just going they're like lemmings they'll march over the cliff on this stuff and we have, and we have to take advantage of that both in terms of winning actual victory for people but then punishing them in election year to year
2: Yeah, I I just want to touch on quickly before the segment ends. um, Another really important issue that's getting tied up in this partisan budget fight is the um, ability of people who live in this state but are not documented to get driver's licenses. And in between the last show and this one, a horrible story. Um, In Green Bay, a grandfather, uh, 12-year active member of his church, City of Hope. Uh, You know, he's got two children, eight grandchildren, Clean record. The only thing on his record is that he was driving without a license, has been picked up, um, and is slated to be deported by ICE. And, you know, as uh, Voces de la Frontera points out, this would be incredibly traumatic for his family, especially for the grandchildren, but for everybody. I mean, he's lived here for an incredibly long time. He does landscaping, he does snow removal. Uh, the man's name is Raimundo. And they have, the, I just want to point out, there's an action right now. You can um, sign a petition to ICE. And for those of us with the privilege of being in this country um, in a documented way, we can sign that. Um, people who are undocumented can't because it's going to go to ICE. So uh, you can you can direct your attention to that. But generally, this is a huge issue that is getting getting tied up in this budget fight, and we got to keep the pressure on that as well.
0: Yeah, it's another one of those where it's just dumb, right? Like it's just really economically stupid not to want somebody like him to be a productive citizen in this country, right? And and that we would. <laughs> you know do that is just it's just silly all right folks so with that we got to take a break when we come back we're gonna have sarah godlewski for our favorite episode what the godlewski does the state treasurer do you're listening to the battleground wisconsin of citizen action welcome back to the battleground wisconsin we are very happy to have our next installment of sarah what the Godlewski does the state treasurer do state treasurer sarah godlewski thanks for joining us.
3: It's always great to be here, Matt. Thanks for having
0: me. Well, first of all, Sarah, we want to thank you for coming out last week to the uh, People's Action National Convention and being a featured speaker uh, twice, actually, both in the opening night uh, with a giant stage of our electeds, including Mandela Barnes, uh, but then also speaking to other local electeds about the importance of uh, setting out a vision and working with groups like People's Action and other people's groups. So we want to thank you for coming
3: out. And and I want to say, Matt, it was an incredible um, opportunity. I mean, the energy that was in that room and the thousands of people from around the country that are willing to roll up their sleeves and really support um, the agenda of citizen action is just so important because, we know that we're gonna get outspent, but it's people power that wins our campaigns and it just reaffirmed that our hard work and continuing to fight for what we fight for every day. So it was it was a great um, conference and I'm really looking forward to what we're gonna achieve in twenty nineteen and twenty twenty.
0: Yeah, one of the just one of the things that we really focus on at the convention and people's action and us at Citizen Action are increasingly focusing on is how do we recruit ourselves, to run for office and stop looking around for the, quote, perfect candidate, and that the perfect candidate is us often. And a lot of our folks aren't often called upon and asked to lean into their leadership. And Sarah, that's one of the things that we were super excited about you is that, like, you never envisioned you were going to be an elected official, but you, like, you saw a serious problem around the office and leaned into your leadership and ran and didn't listen to anyone who might have been, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why you, right? Like, And just, like, why me? Because... I, I have the passion to do this, and so thank you. And we really want to encourage other folks who are thinking about running for office. 2020 is just around the corner. Please reach out to us. We think it's really important for more folks to get in the game. So with that, Sarah, we wanted to talk with you a little bit about um, the state budget. And you have been on our podcast talking about what you have in the budget to try to get funded. So you have, I think, new information for us about that, especially with joint finance.
3: Yeah, I will tell you, Matt, I mean, this whole budget process and what the Republican leadership has been doing to really stifle, I think, what people have voted for is just Um, mind-boggling. The Joint Finance Committee is actually hearing today um, their first round of kind of budget. And the first motion in this first hearing, they are literally removing A couple of core things from the budget without even consideration. Um, And one of those things is actually my entire budget. So we we aren't even really given a chance to talk to the Joint Finance Committee. Now, luckily, we know in a democracy, uh, we can make motions on the floor and we can still fight for this to the bitter end, which is exactly what we're doing. But just the fact that Without even having any sort of debate or discussion, it is the first motion that they are making at their joint finance committee to remove our entire budget, regardless of the 62 percent of Wisconsinites that voted to keep it, I think is just really telling that they don't care what the people of Wisconsin want.
2: That is astounding. Hey, Sarah, it's Rebecca Lynch with the Working Families Party. I had no idea. I am horrified. And, you know, I I appreciate that you uh, referenced the results of the referendum just now. I mean, yet again, this is unbelievable. Yet again, we see Republican leadership in Madison spitting in the eye of every Wisconsin voter. I mean, we've been saying that all along in terms of how they're responding to this budget, because when folks voted for Tony Evers and Mandela Barnes, they voted for this budget, right? They voted for the things that they ran on, but they also voted to save your entire office and then elected you to that office. I can't believe it. I mean, what an three, three
0: staff. <laughs> well, that's that's steep. I mean, geez, you were asking so much, right? Like it wasn't even to get back to where the office should be. It was just to like try to get the thing moving again, functioning. Right.
3: And and let's just even lay it out. I mean, Some Republicans have said to me, you know, I have really worked hard to reach across the aisle. I have now met with almost 50 legislators to talk about the importance of transparency and accountability and and what this office should be doing for Wisconsinites. And one of the things that they will say to me is, you know, Sarah, we don't want to use tax dollars for big government. But what is so fascinating and what's so misled in that comment is that my office doesn't run on tax dollars at all. <laughs> we have over 40000 or $40 million in our checking account that we have earned through the programs that we run. And all we are asking is to use less than $200,000 of that per year to have three people in our office, because we are a statewide constitutional office that have core responsibilities. And so It's just literally saying, can I just use my checking account (laughs) to do some basic operations? I mean, this isn't tax dollars. This is just access to our own checking account.
0: Yeah. And for folks who don't remember, um, I believe the last time you were on, sir, we talked about a couple of key things you want to do. And without, without any real resources, it makes it very hard to take on and run a task force, looking at student loan debt, right? How do we tackle this? How do we create potentially a state financing system for people to have safe retirement, which are two core things that you have talked about? This is the kind of things that if we don't sort of also staff up your office, it makes it harder to do. But these are really important things. We also know these are things the public wants. So yet again, we're seeing that rejected. Um, So Sarah, Tell our listeners what they ought to be doing if, uh, if they want to help out. How, how can they help out in this fight? And, and knowing that this is this is going to be a longer-term fight. JFC is just the first stop, and it's their stop of really showing, quite frankly, the stuff that they're concerned about in their votes.
3: Yeah, and I just even want to point something out, Matt, if I can. I mean, we've been in office now for a little over 100 days, and within those 100 days, I mean, we've already found cost savings. For over between 200 to 300 thousand dollars. So I would argue within the first hundred days of our office, we've already paid for ourselves for what we're asking for. And so again, I don't think what we are doing is anything ridiculous, and it's just all a political play on stifling transparency and accountability, which is not what Republicans want. So to, to your point, Matt, um, we know that it's people power once again that's gonna that saved the office and that will make sure we get the funding that we deserve. Um, What we are encouraging people to do is to call their legislators or to call members of the Joint Finance Committee. Um, There's literally a 1-800 number and I can share it with everybody. Um, It's 1-800-362-9472. Again, that's 1-800-362-9472. And we're encouraging people to... um, Call and say that they believe the office should be funded as requested by the governor. Um, And so that is three positions to use our checking account to do
2: that. Uh, So Treasurer Gotlewski, I know this is the crisis of the moment and crisis it truly is for you being able to do almost anything. Um, but I also want to take advantage of this segment, you know, you're on once a month to just check in. I hadn't done the math and realized that you've, you've just accomplished a tremendous feat, which is your first hundred days. Um, so that, that's really extraordinary. And I wonder, you know, for folks who are, um, you know, want to keep up with what you're doing and want to be supportive of it, uh, moving forward, obviously they should call 1-800-362-9472 to save the office. Uh, but is there anything else that you want folks to do, whether it's following a Facebook page or signing up for emails or, or how do you, how can people be constantly engaged with the work you're doing in your office?
3: Right. No, that's a great question. Uh, well, for starters, I mean, we are so glad we can always be on battleground Wisconsin and being active with working families and citizen action, but, um, people can follow us at both uh, Sarah for Wisconsin and also the Wisconsin State Treasurer where they're both on Facebook as well as on Twitter. Um, And we are currently working on, and they can sign up for emails on both of those sites. Um, We plan on sending out a quarterly newsletter soon. Uh, To your point, Rebecca, talking about the things that we've done with everything from um, overturn a gag order on climate change to how we plan on doing investing in renewable energy across the state. And so we plan on um, continuing to update people about all the things we're doing through primarily our Facebook and kind of Twitter accounts and then our newsletter
0: well we're going to declare that you've accomplished more in your first hundred days than this legislature has accomplished uh, in the last hundred <laughs> years no um, so Sarah, we want to we want to thank you again for coming out to our convention and for coming on the podcast uh, monthly. We really appreciate it and look forward to continuing this fight to get your office up and running and fully funded. But we'll tell you right now we make this commitment. That even if you get zero funding, we want to help fund you by being the energy to help your initiatives uh, not die just because we don't have you don't have the uh, the resources. So, our, we're committed to you know help you with these these the, your agenda that you have talked about and we'll continue to talk about going forward. So, thank you so much, uh, State Treasurer Gudelsky.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: All right, we'll talk to you next month. And with that, we got to take a break here at the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We are going to start a little segment here that I'm going to bring up periodically. It's currently the progressive presidential primary pickle. And uh, I'll be more clear. So Vice President, former Vice President Joe Biden has now formally entered the presidential primary race, and it has, I would argue, significantly changed the dynamic. Um, there's been a lot of polling done uh, since he, he announced. Uh, and, but generally, across the board, he holds a fairly significant lead. If you look at real, clear politics polling average, Bi- Biden's at 39%. It's a very, very large number. Sanders is at 16. And then Warren, Buttigieg, Harris, everywhere else, they're floating in the 7 to 8 range. Um, And then we have others. But we're over 20 total candidates. And we're literally in a situation where this looks a lot like 2018 Wisconsin gubernatorial primary. If anything, it's more complicated in that you have... More candidates, with actually bigger—I would say many of them—more significant records, right? I mean, Bernie was a serious presidential candidate, right? Whereas in the uh, Dem primary, we had a probably lower-tier folks, right? Um, But Evers, where the comparison comes, Evers fairly quickly got into the twenties and then got around thirty percent, and it just there was no way for any other candidate to get oxygen and. Let's be honest, right, Evers was not running as a progressive, I mean, certainly not running as a conservative, um, but there were a number of other candidates who had far more progressive positions, um, but none of them could really get any oxygen, and we're starting, I'm going to throw it out there for discussion, seeing that here in the presidential, Uh, Sanders is up at 16, and actually in a lot of ones, Warren was fairly similar. We know in Wisconsin, uh, Warren and Sanders in the last Marquette were at 49%, but uh, I think we're going to see uh, more more surge for Biden. So I'm going to throw this first to Robert, and then get your thoughts on this dynamic. And obviously, as progressives, right, like this is probably concerning, right? I'm sure that a lot of our listeners aren't necessarily the biggest fans of Biden. Although we'll start this conversation by saying we all agree he is significantly better than Donald Trump. Robert, you get first
1: crack well right we're talking about the primary here no one at least in this panel i don't think it's talking about opposing biden if he's the nominee against trump but having said that biden is not only a very moderate democrat now whatever he might have been previously in a different version of the Democratic party in the 80s and 90s but he's also has a very long record and is part of a lot of the bad decisions democrats have made over the last couple decades You can't say that about Tony Evers. So even though Tony Evers is a moderate, Tony Evers is a breath of fresh air in that he's kind of a clean slate on a lot of issues and uh, has the potential to evolve more on issues than Biden. And Biden really hasn't authentically apologized for things like the crime bill or the Anita Hill hearing or all the bad trade votes he took, for example, um, or or a lot of his other neoliberal economic policies. I mean, he said he made some mistakes, but that's not uh, what we're talking about here. What is he going to do that's different? And I do think we need to, not right now, it's not an emergency in May of 2019, but by the end of this year, consolidate around one progressive candidate, because this is still our best chance, maybe in American history, to have an actual bona fide movement progressive be president, because this country needs fundamental structural reform. To prevent a climate catastrophe, create an economy that works for everyone and is not race, basically, has built in gender and racial uh, discrimination into it as far as inequality that actually guarantees healthcare as a right. You can't do that by simply working within the current broken and corrupt system. And, and Biden started out by taking the big money and running on that. And one campaign wag told me when I said I thought that was a mistake said that all the folks who care about that aren't with many ways, so you might as well take the money in order to win the primary. But then you're, you're compromised, right? If the lead lobbyist for Comcast holds a, a big fundraiser for you the day you announce, then, of course, are you really going to do reform of telecommunications, just for example? And it goes on and on along those lines. And so, obviously, Biden is better than Trump, and and we end up supporting him if he comes to the primary. But we need to not punt on this great opportunity. And I will talk to, to elect the progressive president. Let me tell you where I am personally, because since action is not endorsed yet, and we're part of People's Action, a national network that is not endorsed yet, but we plan to all endorse together if we can. And that is only two candidates right now, and feel free to email, call if you disagree, have met my criterion for proving, based on record and policy, that they are strong progressive. And that is Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And I'm open to some of the others because they've shown signs of it, but they still have to show me more. And I'm even open to Biden showing he's converted, but he has to actually show me that.
0: And with that, Robert's got to run off to joint finance. Robert, goodbye. Rebecca, you have the floor for the final five minutes. (laughs)
2: Um, Yeah, I think that was really insightful. Uh, Something that I think this Democratic primary really lays bare for me. Is the need to really invest in the project of building a progressive political party? Because the Democratic Party is just, you know, I think a euphemism for it is that it's a big tent, but we have in that party school privatizers and elementary school teachers in West Virginia who were striking to save public education. We have people who are fine with the healthcare system being a marketplace privatization where, you know, healthcare isn't a right; it's a commodity. And we have folks who want single payer. We have folks who are, you know, going to take money from the gas and oil industry. And we have folks who are proposing a green new deal. And so, I just, it, it, it does not work. I think um, for the future of our country, you know. And Robert puts it in such stark terms in terms of the climate crisis we have. I think the capitalism crisis that you know we are we are approaching. There just has to be an alternative, and. Um, I kind of w- someone who says it way better than I did actually is one of the candidates who's running for president um Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Uh, I think sometime in the last week she had an event where she was explaining you know for for our listeners who don't know at one point she was a Republican. And she was a Republican because everyone in her town was a Republican. She wasn't really political, but that was the cultural thing that, you know, that was the reality of her life and talked about how she became a Democrat. And it had to do with her fight against the credit card companies who were not allowing you know, people like you and I to apply for bankruptcy when big companies could. And she was fighting the credit card companies. And she said, man, I looked around in the middle of that fight and I realized all the money's on one side, all the hurting's on the other. And when I jumped in politically and I got in that fight, I fought it for ten years. And by the end of it, I fully understood that every Republican stood there for the banks, and half of the Democrats did. And so I think that is that is a really astute way of looking at our political system. Um, you know, and I certainly live in the real world, and you know, I want to um, defeat what we're seeing come out of the White House right now. And so whoever the nominee is, the nominee is. I'm realistic about about the battle ahead, but. I think uh, it will be really interesting to see with the debates coming up in June, with um, other people gaining momentum, you know, what happens. And I guess the last thing I would say is that I, what I love about this big field is that we are getting really important ideas. Um, I think, you know... Uh, Castro's immigration policy is the best articulation of what we need to do in our national policy and our, our quote-unquote border security with our foreign policy to solve that crisis. No one else is articulating that. I mean, it's getting credit from people in the media, from Elizabeth Warren, from others for that policy, and it's something we need to talk about. And across the board, I think we're hearing really interesting things. So I'm excited for the conversations to continue.
0: Yeah, I, I, this was great. This is a good start. We're going to talk, continue to talk more about this topic uh, as this uh, race evolves. I must say, uh, the reason I'm super interested in it is I agree with the one of the things Robert said, that was I think we have a historic opportunity in the 2020 presidential. I think whoever wins the primary can beat Trump, right? So like, I think like whoever we put out there has great shot, good shot, right, can win, um, but I'm convinced— that we're ready to make a significant change, and if we have a candidate who speaks to these issues that both you and Robert talked about, it will increase the vote. It will increase, and it will bring people who I'm concerned if it's Biden might not come out, right? And 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 and, and that bothers me. And and beyond just the electoral implications, we have a real opportunity to actually make significant change. And I'll just say it: I, I'm similar to Robert. If a Warren or uh, a Sanders or someone like that were to win. Um, real, really, really really, really big change. Um, and, and, and because Trump's in there, I think that presents that opportunity. People are really open to doing things differently. You mentioned Elizabeth Warren, right? Like I mean Julie Henzie, who I just talked about, is not some person who's been a radical all her life. She's been radicalized by the system we've been living in and the experiences of getting access to healthcare. right? It's radicalizing people, and so we have an opportunity to show them a different vision. And so I am deeply concerned, actually, what I see. I, I see... Uh, a problem where there's just too many people. And short of a lot of folks dropping out, I'm not exactly sure how anyone gets oxygen to take on uh, Biden short of him, you know, really damaging or imploding or starting to do self-damage. So, but the issues are what making... This interesting to people, so if we stay focused on that, this can stay fluid and uh, stay focused on changing that debate. So, can I make a super quick plug? If you if you haven't
2: voted um, in the National Working Families kind of, you know, I don't know, like poll of member pool of where you're at. It's ranked choice, and I really encourage folks to do that because it's something that we're looking at on a week-by-week basis to see where our members are.
0: Excellent. So mm-hmm. send us a link, and we'll make sure we put that on. we got to wrap this uh, show up. Of course, want to thank Sarah Godlewski for joining us this week. Uh, but uh, we got to say goodbye. We want to thank our producer, Brian Wilbridge, makes it happen every week. We are Citizen Action. This is the Battleground Wisconsin.